Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And joining us today on the other side of the mic is a return guest. I'm 96% sure this is his third time on the podcast, Martin Green, co-CIO and CEO at Cambrian Asset Management. Martin, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be with you again, Frank. I need to figure out a tiering system for return guests three times maybe you're in like the the bronze club four times then you enter the and then i don't know maybe there's a we've joked about a token but maybe there's something (laughs) um some sort of you know now that events are back in in action maybe we have a all guests who have been on the show three or more times they get invited to a fancy dinner or something give people incentive to, to keep coming back. There you go. Although in these market conditions, maybe it's not so, maybe it's not so fancy. Maybe it's <laughs> yeah. Like, we go to Wendy's. <laughs> maybe it's lunch or breakfast. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So how are things going? I think you guys somehow were able to squeeze through May with a 3.7% up month, which is pretty good considering the backdrop June. Hopefully you're not doing too bad in June. How's business? Business is fine. Yep. We did make money last month. The SEC frowns on selective mid-month reporting of numbers. So I'd love to just answer your question about June, (laughs) but I I can't do that until the end of the month when we send our our information to all investors. But from an investment perspective, process-wise, at Cambrian, uh, there was really nothing unusual about May. You know, our systems adjust their risk exposure many, many times a month 
uh, usually in a gradient with like several thousand trades. And so we do that many, many months, most months. And April slash May wasn't unusual in that, except after we'd taken risk off and initiated some shorts, the markets continued to go down. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it comes back and we go the other way. So it's basically your directional, but it's happening within these very, very short time frames and completely based on, I, I think last time you came on, we we unpacked just the the vast amount of data sets that you guys are leveraging. Yeah, we can talk later on about a new a new data set that we've been working on for well, it's it's been an, an egregiously long period of time <laughs> for a small firm like ours. It's it's been eighteen months and it's still not in production, but we're closing in on releasing it into production, and that's leverage information. But we can come on to that probably a, a little bit later if you like. So, what are your thoughts on the market right now? A lot of people are pointing their fingers at the Fed and the macro environment, things are super volatile. What signals are you sort of looking for in this new market? Are you, Do you think traders and other investors are paying more attention to things like FOMC, the Fed, macro, than maybe they were yes. a year ago? Yes, I think that's true. And I, I'm going to sp- sort of speak with the caveat that we're not macro traders. And so we don't have a discretionary judgment that we invest with from this perspective. So I'll just offer my personal views, but just know that the way we trade is is different. It's completely market data, quantitatively driven. So I think there's a couple of things. Number one, nowadays, you're looking at its risk off because of the Fed, perhaps underreacting to inflation maybe they're about to overreact that's the discussion in the marketplace and therefore risk assets are all have all sold off and in times where there's extreme degrossing you know deleveraging and selling the correlations go to one and so you know in normal times they may be uncorrelated but these are not normal times and so yeah i think that that's the main driver yeah today. yeah 100% so what do you think are the biggest crypto-specific headwinds right now? So maybe I can answer that in a slightly different way. I was talking with one of our investors uh, uh-huh. last week. who, who sh- He's a very experienced m- macro investor. He worked with Stan Druckenmiller. And he said a few things that I thought were just r- really, really intelligent. Where So, so he's, he's basically... I mean, from the conversation with him, I would say the following. Mm-hmm. It's highly likely that digital assets are the fastest reacting to changes in inflation and interest rate expectations. And fast reacting things often overshoot and then pull back. So with that as a backdrop, what's really happened? Well, in the Fed response in Q2 of 2020, you saw digital assets catch a bid like no other asset and more quickly than any other asset. This was Paul Tudor Jones's May 2020 memo where he said it's the fastest horse in the race, Bitcoin is. And so... And, and now it's the slowest tortoise. 
Actually, I think it's the, still the fastest horse in the race. It overshot. What's happening right now is you've seen the interest rate expectations kind of skyrocket. So what you're seeing is Bitcoin pulling back on that, everything else pulling back on that, risk assets have pulled back. What you'll probably see if the Fed ends up with a situation where the economy goes into a recession and the Fed has to sort of temper rate increases, if prices are still elevated, but the rate of inflation is tempered, Mm. you might see crypto assets catch a bid before the rest of the market. Now, things happen very quickly, but what might happen is there may be positive correlations, crypto and the stock market sort of starts going up, but crypto goes up much, much faster. And again, when it goes up much, much faster, much, much earlier, it can overshoot. And then it goes over and then it pulls back. But you know, I mean, if you think about it, right, relative to tech stocks, Bitcoin, for example, is 2x plus what it was at the end of Q1 2020, right? Yeah. When it was about $10,000. It's a, a lot of really these tech good stocks point. are not. They've, yeah. They're not. They're back at where they were. They've round tripped. Yeah. So Bitcoin point to point has, has done pretty well. No, it's a really interesting point, Martin, because I feel like it speaks to this underpinning essence or nature of crypto markets, which is things unravel or get to the center, the forefront of the market more quickly than they do in equities or some other market. I don't know if that's tied to the level of transparency that resides there on the blockchain. Market data is effectively free for all people. There's also the fact that, you know, we're we're very news driven in terms of like consumers Mm -hmm, of news. mm -hmm. We're all on the Twitter. So these things happen, you know, let's step back just for a second. If you think of something like the Luna unraveling or even Celsius, these events happen within days where they would take place over the course of weeks or months in crypto. We don't know what the intent was. Some people obviously have a lot of salt against Luna, but I'm not making this comparison to suggest that Doquan is is a criminal. But the unraveling of Madoff happened over the course of years and years and years, or any other sort of failed business. You know, it just it it doesn't happen this quickly. Whereas, you know, Luna was the darling of the market all but three months ago, and now is effectively worth zero. That is unique, and that I mean that. That is, I I don't know what the question here is, but maybe we can kind of examine that. Like that changes the game. It does. I mean, I think we have to remember, and we all do in the industry, but people outside the industry have to remember that these fundamentally, all of them, including Bitcoin, even though it's 10 plus years old, is an early stage technology, early stage in an eventual possible adoption Mm. curve. And it's still very small. I mean, the markets are still very small. And so funds coming into a trillion dollar market cap, network capitalization, digital asset market to speculate on the eventual valuation of these things years down the road. And those funds are coming in from 
equity markets that are 50 to 100 trillion dollars in size or you know i mean you you name the other markets they're so much larger than crypto markets so it sloshes the valuations around just substantially coupled with the fact that a lot of these things are not cash flow bearing so they are you don't have investors who necessarily are value driven investors who who go against the market right you don't have the warren buffett saying oh this business throws off cash you know it's super cheap relative to its intrinsic value those investors really don't don't exist or they don't have a consensus valuation measure until the merge happens uh, with ethereum then you might have a yield bearing asset where you have some of those types of investors I have a few different questions, but I'm thinking about our recording yesterday with Jim Greco. And one thing we talked about was how the next cycle, uh, if, if there, hopefully there is a next cycle, right? <laughs> I think one of your colleagues says, wait a minute, that this is the last <laughs> cycle, right? <laughs> he, he good. has been, he's been so funny. I think, um, in one of our telegrams, I think I said, is ETH going to go to uh, a thousand? And he he responded, remove the three zeros <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, Stephen's very funny. Wow. Follow him on Twitter. Gallows humor, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if we if we don't laugh, we'll cry. But anyway, going back to Jim, he said that if we look at the current coins that are the darlings, it was Luna, it was Solana, it was Avalanche. They're not going to find themselves in the dustbin, although Luna is, is clearly there. But as for the other ones, it's going to be really tough for them. There's going to be a new batch, probably. Do you do you see that happening? Like, and as an investor, how do you navigate that? Where one day these are the coins that everyone's paying attention to. Maybe that's the signal. Once everybody starts paying attention, that's when you sort of allocate out or or, or find new opportunities. But how does a firm fund position itself as you know, yeah. coins become sort of at the center of the sure. of the universe and then move yeah. out? That's a great question. Um, I think there's no question that there will be there will be assets today that are that are monsters in the future. And there will be assets, you know, in the top ten today that are asymptotically going to zero. Yeah. And there will be monsters in the future that haven't even been created. It's the nature of being very early in a in a space where you know we saw this in the web internet companies etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's tremendous inflow of developers entrepreneurs and capital inventing new things and i fundamentally believe that it is very probable that 10 years from now maybe even 5 years from now you're looking at thousands if not tens of thousands of investable assets that are able to be traded on exchanges around the world 24/7 whereas you probably only have a few thousand equities on the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq put together um, mm. we may see a multiple of that in terms of digital assets some of them will be securities many of them perhaps may not be and so we're certainly as a firm you know we think when the internet applies a zero marginal cost lower friction sort of approach and, and I'm I'm using an analogy here to the internet, but the market structure that crypto exchanges and DeFi 
decentralized exchanges have created is useful as very low friction, low marginal cost ways to make markets for capital formation. And I think that that what will happen is like you see YouTube has orders of magnitude more content options than cable companies did 20 years ago. We will have maybe not orders of magnitude, but a multiple of the investable options on exchanges five years from now than we do in the equity markets. And today that's not the case. We only have probably a tenth of the number. We probably have a couple of hundred that are liquid enough to trade digital assets versus a few thousand in the exchanges. So how do you prepare for that world? I mean, from our perspective, you systematically, you construct your portfolio dynamically so that you can recycle capital away from losers and into winners. Because in high compounding digital assets where a winner can go on a on a huge run, you definitely want to have that in your portfolio. But you also want to recycle capital out of the one that's declining and going to zero. And that's obvious. It's su- super simple. It's a little bit more tricky to do it in a programmatic fashion. But that's part of the goal is rebalancing your portfolio dynamically and systematically. Maybe we can sort of just explain like how these quant systems work and then how do you reconfigure them? Is there any like retooling that you need to do when there are these periods of significant market stress? Well, I would say, so that's a great question. Let me answer that by saying the worst thing you could do as a quant manager is get into a situation where the markets are doing something slightly unusual, like in May. There was nothing crazily unusual about May. The worst thing you can do is start making it up as you go along on a discretionary basis. We're just not, humans aren't designed to make great analytical judgments when their brains are filled with cortisol, serotonin, or dopamine. You know, they're just not. So our systems are designed to take risk off, like sell along, or buy to cover a short if the market goes against us. So if we're long, the market goes against us to some pre-programmed amount, and that changes obviously all the time, the systems will take risk off so that if the market becomes more extreme, we've protected our investors' capital. So that's by design. There are other strategies where if the market sort of goes against you, you have a position, it gets cheaper, you double down. But if the market continues to go down, you can get carried out on a stretcher. Our view is you need to design your systems so if the market goes against you, your first priority is to preserve capital. And then if you can make money, you make money. So we don't override the model. So from an investing point of view, an investment process point of view, there's literally nothing different that we do in May or June than we do normally. And the investment systems just work the way they do normally. Because you have to assume that there will be large drawdowns in crypto. I mean, they've happened three out of the last four years that we've been trading, and they happened before we started trading in 2018. And so you've got to design your systems with the knowledge that extreme market events and drawdowns will happen. And so you've got to design your systems to work like that. So basically, with one exception in the month of May and June, it was just business as usual at our firm. No meetings were rescheduled. We didn't have conversations really about the 
the market in terms of like what to do differently. We just continued our, our usual work. There was one exception to that, which we can talk a little bit about. Yeah. Um, what was the exception? It, it wasn't. Yeah. So it wasn't related to the investment side, but it's a review of counterparty risk. So there are times when the market conditions are so extreme that one counterparty can fail. It might not be your counterparty. It might be, you know, I don't want to name names, but there can be other either exchanges or lending companies and things like that where they fail. And that creates a domino effect in the industry. This is not unique to crypto. This has happened in traditional markets many, many times. You know, the financial crisis in 2008 was a great example of this. And so you want to be very careful always in investing and in crypto, particularly to minimize your counterparty risk, because if they fail and they have your capital, it didn't matter what your investment strategy was doing. Your capital is, is in the boat that might be sinking over there through no fault of your own, except you fail to do adequate diligence on your counterparty risk. So we we have advisors from the traditional hedge fund world who assess you know, cybersecurity risks, operational, compliance, and credit risk. And the one exception to sort of May was we felt like the the risks were so elevated in the markets and we didn't know what we didn't know about the state of other funds or other exchanges, et cetera. We wanted to make sure that we were doing a very thorough job of reviewing. So just maybe for risk. people who, when you say counterparty risk, I'm sure our listeners know what a counterparty is, but yeah. let's specifically, it's exchanges, it's maybe, yeah. maybe are you lending or taking we don't leverage? Lend. Okay. We, we don't lend. I mean, but, I'm sorry, um, I mean, borrowing, you know, for, borrowing capital. Yeah. If you borrow, you know, you might be required to post some amount of collateral to the lender. And so if they fail, then they may take your collateral down with them. So, or if your funds are on an exchange or at a custodian and they fail, then, you know, it may be that you legally have recourse to your capital, but it, it might not be immediately available to you. You know, it might be yours, but it's just trapped up in a legal proceeding that needs to take place. I mean, this happened in the financial crisis. People got their money back, but not right away. So essentially, we've always taken a very restrictive and conservative approach to counterparty risk, you know, which exchanges we work with, custodial partners, etc., and not lending or putting our collateral out to businesses, which may not be employing the same types of risk strategies that we are, and therefore we commingle our risk with theirs. We don't want to do that. So we've always taken a very restrictive view of that. You know, JP Morgan became our fund administrator last year. We work with the JP Morgan Bank as well as Signature. Our primary dealer is Coinbase. And so, you know, we're we try to make sure that we're dealing with very well capitalized entities. But in the month of May, we absolutely asked one of our advisors on the credit side of things to do a deep dive of any risks that we may be exposed to. And yeah, that was really helpful to do that. And we're happy with the reports. But that was the one exception to sort of business as usual. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling in rebalancing. 
Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A crypto fin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com crypto. It sounds boring, like risk yeah. management, like it's not a topic people think is exciting, but it's one question that so many people in traditional finance or, or just you know, people looking at what's happening in the crypto market, especially post Luna. And you had a number of funds, and I'm not going to pour salt into their wounds, but, you know, we all know the funds that got hit big. And so many people ask me, where were their risk management? How could they allow themselves to be so overexposed? And, you know, not have the types of meetings that you're talking about where things are reassessed. You know, of course, it's easy to throw stones. And when the music's playing, it's hard sometimes to step off the merry-go-round. But it almost seems like a lot of people in crypto don't do that type of proper risk management. It's very, very important. And let's unpack risk management. The most important thing is matching the liquidity of your assets and your liabilities. There are other risks as well, but I think the one that we've seen manifest itself in the last 30 to 45 days has been, um, if you have a mismatch of your liabilities and your assets as a business, you can get into situations where you can be a forced seller. So this happened, let's talk about this from the perspective of not in crypto. But there were, as you know, and your listeners will remember, there was a firm by the name of Long-Term Capital Management, which was run by some of the brightest minds in finance. And ironically, they didn't have long-term capital. They had overnight capital that they borrowed, and the quant models were betting on spreads, basically narrowing and then profiting. 
and they widened. So the market went against them. They lost more money. Their models were like, oh, they're going to, we're going to make even more money when those spreads narrow eventually. But they had overnight liquidity basically on their liabilities, but their assets, if they'd have tried to liquidate them within one day, would have suffered big losses. They would have moved the market. And so they had a mismatch of liquidity, even though they said that they were long-term capital. And so that's exactly what happened. Their leverage got tightened. In other words, they had to then sell and everybody knew it. And so the, um, the markets just went against them and they, they blew up. Now, if they'd have matched their liabilities with their assets in terms of the liquidity so that they would have had the same time to liquidate their assets if their leverage was called, they probably could have not only survived, they probably could have made the money that their models thought would be made as the spreads that they were betting on came, came true. So it was just kind of one of those situations where they just didn't adequately understand the one of the primary basic things is matching the duration and the liquidity of your assets and liabilities. There are probably players in crypto who almost certainly have that problem right now. Martin, I can't help but think of the movie Margin Call as you're sort of describing this risk management <laughs> yes. process, you know, Stanley Tucci, you know, leaving the office with the sort of with sort of the file that had the missing link to how uh, all of their systems were, you know, Shit was about yeah. to hit the fan. Is that what it yeah. looks like? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. Um, but let's put it this way: I'm quite certain that the words "margin call" have been written and spoken many, many, many times in the last thirty days. Many, many times. There's a lot floating around. So, what do you think could be the catalyst that gets this market moving in the other direction? Is it? Macro, again, going back to what we talked about at the top of the conversation, that needs to resolve itself. Or could you see a possibility where since crypto, like we said, responds so quickly to everything, it's kind of the first mover that it will maybe recover before equities? Is that a possibility? Uh, again, take this with a grain of salt. I am not a macro investor. I work at a quantitative firm that does not incorporate the things I'm about to say into its models. So this is just one person's opinion. But if you asked, my guess would be that, yes, when the expectations are the Fed basically has control over inflation or inflation is abating and therefore rates are no longer just unboundedly going up, my guess is when that happens, crypto markets respond quite aggressively and before equity markets. I don't know when that happens. That's one. And I think another catalyst might be the merge. Yeah. Um, you know. So what are your thoughts on, on the merge? Well, it's been seven years in, in Tibet, right, as they say. But when you look closely at what's happening, it certainly may or may not happen in August, but it's looking like it's closer than it's ever been to launching. And I think it might be a, a really interesting catalyst for the market. I think that was another joke I saw on Twitter from Anthony Sassano, our Australian friend, who uh, tweeted, the merge is closer than ever to happening. And someone responded, well, yeah, that's how time works. It doesn't go in the other It doesn't go in the that's other right. direction. Zeno's paradox, right? <laughs> we're, we're always. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, uh, and again, this is not what I do 
for a living. So no one should take this as anything other than other than um, your great opinion. Yeah, worth worth nothing uh, in in this respect. But so, what is the secret sauce to building? a quant model that performs well during bear markets and bull cycles? Well, if I could easily answer that, we wouldn't have needed years to build it and thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of computer code. Let me say this. So in 2018, we spent a ton of time looking at the market structure, getting the market data, cleaning it, building a hypothesis, testing models, optimizing them, validating them before we launched. And our main factors were essentially momentum and mean reversion and price. And that it's complicated to do. And you have to balance sort of short-term versus longer-term momentum and mean reversion and noise and all of those types of things. But that's stood the test of time, largely because human beings you know, there are momentum factors in all markets. And these markets are kind of like many markets, but on steroids in the volatility and the fact that they trade 24 seven in the fact that they're, they're early stage technologies. So people are speculating about the future value, all of those things. We've been working on a fundamental sort of piece of data, which is the amount of leverage in the system as a signal to add to the model. It is not live yet. We had the idea 18 months ago. We had an initial idea. Is this retail leverage, like product leverage or institutional leverage or or a mix of both? It could be both or or will be both. And so, as you know, the perpetual swap markets are often larger than the spot markets in many, many instances and in many digital assets. And they are often used with leverage coin margined or stable coin margined. I mean, our initial hypothesis was, look, there are probably times when the market is way over its skis and super highly levered. And those are the times where the market's probably quite fragile and uh, small negative price changes. When prices go down, they cause forceless liquidations, which causes prices to go down until the leverage gets washed out of the system. So this is 18 months ago that we thought sort of had this kind of obvious thought we talked about this and, on the uh, last podcast. I'm disappointed that it wasn't our conversation that triggered the idea, but at least we're talking <laughs> I'm about I'm disappointed it. that we didn't get it live. We had this idea 18 months ago. We're, we're a firm with eight people. We've had four people working in detail on this at different points over the last 18 months. Uh, we had many, many dead ends. This is going to provide like a signal of when the market's getting over its skis from yeah. a perpetual swap leverage perspective. Yeah. And we, you know, we thought 18 months ago, this would be a pretty easy thing to quantify a relatively easy thing to find a signal from. And we thought it would be a couple of months before we had it into production. It was literally, there were so many dead ends, ideas that we had, things that just didn't work for various reasons. I think it was at the uh, 14 months into the process we actually had discovered slash engineered the leverage signals that we felt were both profitable and robust, meaning that they would they would stand the test of time. And then a few months more, obviously, to refine and validate and 
and work on putting them in through our simulator and, and then into production. They're still not live yet, but if someone would have told me 18 months ago, you will work on something for over a year without success. You're just searching around for it and you haven't found it yet and you'll keep going, I would have said no. But that's the, that's the nature of the beast because you don't want to find something that is quick to find, but it's ephemeral because then you've got to do the work all over again. It doesn't last for years. We want to find signals that, are, that last for years. Makes sense. On the asset management side of the house, you mentioned, you know, it's still a small portion. Is that, has that been a more challenging business than you anticipated? Well, we run a little, little bit north of $250 million in capital. So that's up from about $50 million 18 months ago. So, I mean, we just grow kind of by referral from our existing investors for the most part. Yeah. And it's obviously with a team of six, you're limited in a way. So you don't want to become too big because then you'll kind of be overstretched. Well, we have eight people at the firm, but the nice thing about software is you're not capacity constrained by your number of people. So a quant firm is scalable from its, a people perspective, but you do have capacity constraints based on liquidity, trading volumes and things like that. And so we always want to make sure that we're not running into that capacity because that hurts returns. Yeah. So any closing thoughts, maybe something that people aren't paying enough attention to? Well, I would have said two months ago that people were underpricing counterparty risk, but I think people are waking up to the issues around counterparty risk, credit risk of your counterparties. You know, it was 60 days ago, you could borrow in size Bitcoin and Ethereum for less than 4% annually. And so it was cheap, cheap money. Counterparty risk was not properly priced in. But I think we're going through a slow motion correction of that. And frankly, I think regulators will speed that process up. You know, this is really important for entities which have investor capital to ensure that they are, they have good disclosure around their reserves, that they highlight rehypothecation risks, that they highlight risks or minimize them in terms of the mismatch of liquidity terms of their assets and liabilities. I think, you know, that's healthy for the industry. It will happen for sure. Yeah. I mean, hopefully there's sticking power and people learn. Yeah, they do. Mar markets are reflexive. I mean, we saw this in the aftermath of the tech boom and bust into the early 2000s. And we'll, we'll come out of this, I think, stronger as an industry for sure. Yeah. And we're probably nearer the bottom than we, well, as we were joking before, than we ever have been before. So until there's a new one. <laughs> Hopefully there is. Well, Martin, Martin Green, co-CIO and CEO at Cambrian Asset Management. You're becoming more and more active on Twitter, or, or at least responding more to some of my tweets. Uh, <laughs> sh should we send them to your Twitter? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, Martin G. Martin G. There you have it. All right, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.